Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. Hello, and welcome to Chaucer for Beginners. In this episode, we're going to chat about The Wife of Bath with Professor Marion Turner. So, Marion, this character obviously resonates with you as you wrote an entire book about her. So can you just tell us a bit about what inspired you to focus on her in particular? Yeah, so The Wife of Bath is not only my favourite character, but was certainly Chaucer's favourite character and has been most people's favourite characters across time. You know, Chaucer puts her into other Canterbury tales and then even puts her into one of his short poems in a way that he doesn't with anyone else. And what I've written about before is that she is the first ordinary woman in English literature. So in the Canterbury Tales, there are only three women. The other two women are nuns. The wife Bath is not a nun. She has been married five times. Um, But when I say ordinary, what I mean is that this is someone who is, she's what we would think of as middle class. She's a working woman. She's sexually active. She talks about her sexual desires. She's deeply flawed. She makes mistakes. She goes on holiday. She gossips. She's ordinary. You know, she's not a queen. She's not a damsel in distress. She's not a saint. She's ordinary. And that makes her extraordinary because there hadn't been women like this in English literature before. You know, she's completely extraordinary because of that that normality to her. So she's a character that also is extraordinary in that she's given so much of a voice by Chaucer. So this is someone who shouldn't have a voice at all in literature at the time, this kind of woman. But he gives her more of a voice than anyone else. She has a much longer prologue than anyone else, for example. So we can see his fascination. So most of the pilgrims, before they tell their tales, they have a short prologue. And often that is might be a discussion with another pilgrim, a little preamble to the tale. Um, there are three, and they're all quite marginal, who have what are known as the confessional prologues. So the other two, the partner and the canon's yeoman, they're kind of a couple of hundred lines long. Wife of Bath, 850 lines for her prologue. And that is where we hear about her, about her life, about her motivations, about her memories. So again, we see that she is she is treated differently as a character by Chaucer compared to the way he treats other characters. So why do you think that is? Well, I think that Chaucer is really interested in different points of view. And I've talked before about the way that that's true of social class. I think that's also true of sex and gender, that he is interested in trying to think about what is it like to have a very different identity to his own identity. So he gives this ordinary woman, this secular woman, so much more of a voice because he is fascinated by trying to think, to a certain extent, about what it's like to be in such a different body, such a different worldview. And then I think she really took off for him because she does. He, he, I mean, he had great material. He, he was using lots of literary sources. But I think he was also fascinated by putting across this very different perspective. OK, and the she's often considered as being quite a complex and sort of mm. pro-feminist character. Um, what's 
What do you think that says about Chaucer in the way he describes a woman like that? I mean, it's such a complicated issue because if you speak to different people, some people will tell you that she is um, a misogynist ideal, that she embodies all the worst things about women. Other people will tell you that she is a, a feminist icon. Um, she's not what we might want her to be. You know, it's very difficult to talk about feminism in the 14th century, which was not an era in which anyone was going around thinking that women should have the vote. You know, I mean, it. so, so it's difficult to talk about those kinds of terms. At the same time, I think that Chaucer was undoubtedly interested in the female experience in a way that is very different from most contemporary authors. And we see that in other characters as well. So someone like Crusade in Troilus and Crusade, he gets inside her head in a way that's very different to his source. So his source, Boccaccio's Philostrato, Crusade is not treated with that kind of sympathy. We don't get a sense of what it's like to be a trafficked woman the way that Chaucer tries to get that across to us. So he is interested in thinking about what it might be like in the case of the wife of Bath to be, for example, the victim of domestic violence. And that is, I think, really, really radical, really interesting that he that he wants to get that across to us. The wife of Bath does come from lots of very misogynist types. So lots of aspects of the wife of Bath come from texts, which were texts about hating women. But to a certain extent, Chaucer takes those texts and turns them on their head by putting them into her voice and by changing them in some really crucial ways. So most of the sources, most of the most important sources, um, were women who were old crones, old prostitutes, um, deeply cynical. The wife of Bath is a, a respectable married woman. I mean, she's been married five times, but that's fairly normal for, you know, lots of widows married many times in the late 14th century. She's not uh, she's not a whore the way that someone like La Vielle, which is, who's an important source in the Romance of the Rose, she's not that kind of character. Chaucer changes her and he, he makes her sympathetic in various ways, I think. And he also makes her so funny. You know, so he'll take jokes that men make about women. When she's making about herself and laughing at herself, it has quite a different tone, quite a different resonance. And he also shows us exactly where she's come from and what she's battling against. Because one of the crucial things he does in the prologue is he he has her tell us about the weight of misogyny. So she talks about something called the Book of Wicked Wives, which her husband had, which is a, you know, a series of texts about how awful women were. Now, these kinds of compilation texts were real medieval texts where you could, it's, it's a bit like a kind of, you know, buy two, get one, get one free scenario where, you know, lots of different misogynist texts would all be packaged together. So if you like them, you get lots more in the same manuscript, all about how terrible women were women are and you know she's this text is being read to her night after night by her husband and it becomes the the cause for domestic violence you know she attacks the book he attacks her it's a but partly what we see there is that when people hear terrible things about women in texts all the time they believe terrible things about women because people get their ideas from the world from art from culture from books and so she's saying and she says explicitly you know Men have told all the stories. You know, women need to have the chance to tell their own story. If women had had the chance to tell stories, she says, they would have told of men more wickedness than all the Mark of Adam could redress. You know, she's saying women need to have that chance. Now, of course, she's not a real woman. You know, she's being written by a man. But he's vocalising through her the importance of trying to get those different voices heard. And as I say, in her prologue, she tells us all kinds of very funny things about you know, how terrible she is to her first three husbands in particular, 
about you know the tricks she uses she's very bawdy she talks about sexual desire she talks about her genitalia all those kinds of things but it's also very serious because she tells us what it's like to be the victim of domestic violence this keeps being mentioned eventually she tells us that the story of what of what happened to her of how awful it is to be a victim like that so it's a very serious story about what it's like to be a woman in a patriarchal society while also being a story which she she maintains control of and she also is able to say you know what she often does say but but nonetheless i'm i'm not cowed i'm keeping going so would you say she was the, like the first female feminist um, to be written about if you like i mean again i'd feminist be careful writer. about the word mm. feminist i think mm. because i i think you know, she she isn't a feminist the way that we would understand that that word but i do think she's a, a as I say, I think the first ordinary woman to have a, to have a proper voice in literature, and I think she's also she voices radical views about women. Right. Okay. Okay. So, what are the sort of more common challenges or misconceptions that students may encounter when interpreting the, her her particular tale? So, yeah. Shall I move on to the tale as well as the prologue? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. After her prologue, which, as I say, this very long prologue in which she is telling us all about herself, um, she then moves on to her story. And her story is a romance. Um, and it begins in the time of King Arthur. It's the only Canterbury tale in the time of King Arthur. And there's a knight riding around. Now, a medieval audience, even more than us, but I think it's still true of us today, have certain expectations of that kind of story. You know, Arthurian times, knight riding around. Expectation, Knight is going to be good guy, or his hero. What he's probably going to do is maybe rescue a damsel in distress, maybe kill a dragon, that kind of thing. And the wife of Bath immediately subverts our expectation of the genre because that's not what happens. And this knight is not a hero. He's a villain. And almost immediately, he rapes a girl. It's very stark. It's very bleak. It's, you know, a, a terrible opening. And it call, it immediately pulls you up and makes you realize how how you know the, the problems of the, of that genre of romance. So in a sense, what we see here is, well, let's take this genre and give it to a woman. And she's going to show us what else knights might be doing. They might not actually be the rescuers. They might be the problem. And the story then goes on to Arthur's court where the... Um, the king says, well, I'm going to execute him. Rape is a terrible crime. The queen and her ladies say, give him to us. Let us punish him. He sinned against women. Let women have the punishment. And they say that they want a more reparative kind of justice. They want him to go away and think about what he's done, about what kind of crime he's committed. So they send him off to find out what women want. So someone who has not cared about female desire has to go away and think about this, has to talk to women, has to think about their desires. So he goes off and does this for a year, can't get an answer, can't get, you know, everyone tells him different things. Eventually comes across this loathly lady in the woods dancing with lots of fairies. The fairies disappear. She says, well, I can give you the answer, but you have to promise to do something for me. You have to promise to give me what I want afterwards. He says, fine. They go back to court. She gives him the answer, which is that women want power, control, maestry. Um, it's the right answer. But then she says, you promised to give me what I want. He goes, yeah, I did. What is it? She wants to marry him. So he's horrified, you know, distraught, but he, he has to marry her. He's deeply depressed. This old, ugly woman then lectures him. She turns out to be 
the centre of ethics in this story. So again, we expect the knight, the young handsome knight, is supposed to be the ethical centre of stories in the Middle Ages. No, it's the old, ugly, low-class woman. And she teaches him about not judging on appearance, not judging on class, about what Christian ethics really is. Long, long speech. And then, you know, he, she says, you know, you shouldn't be so hung up on appearance. But if you are, okay, you can choose. You can have me young and beautiful, but who knows, maybe I'll be faithless. Or you can have me old and ugly and I'll always be a loyal, good wife to you. He says, I, I just don't know what to do. I can't choose. You choose. And he says, she says, okay, so you're giving me the power. He says, yep, it's all down to you. Then she says, well, in that case, if I get the power, you can have everything. I'll be young, beautiful, obedient, um, and faithful. And that's the end. Um, or it's kind of the end. So there are so many problems in this story. And again, this is when we come back to the real difficulties of thinking of this as feminist or anti-feminist, because, you know, so on the one hand, I've got to have many hands here, I think. But, you know, but so, you know, one way of thinking about it is that this is a story that takes rape seriously. You know, it takes it as seriously as a serious crime. And it says, you, you know, and it also takes justice seriously. On another hand, um, this is a story that focuses on the perpetrator, not the victim. The victim vanishes. This all becomes about the rapist, not the victim, in a way that, you know, I think today many people are deeply, deeply uncomfortable with. There's also the fact that the rapist ends up essentially getting rewarded. You know, he ends up with young, beautiful, obedient, faithful wife. And of course, obedient does particularly stick in the crawl. And this has been a story on the one hand about giving people, giving women power, but then seems to be ultimately about that power being used for subservience. But then we also have the fact that, as I already said, the old ugly woman is the knowledgeable one, the clever one, the ethical one. And at the very end of the story, we have this, this seeming happy ending, which is going right back to the tropes of romance, which have been subverted at the start. But now we have that, no, it's just happy old patriarchy again with the subservient woman. But in the same sentence, the wife of Bath then says, but I want God to give us, us real women, husbands who will always do exactly what we say. And if they don't, I want them all to die of the pestilence. So in a sense, at the end, we have two equally problematic endings, two equally problematic views of the relations between the sexes. One saying subservient, obedient woman married to rapist. The other one saying, well, if husbands aren't totally subservient, let the, you know, the women want them all to die. These are both monstrous ways of, of viewing the world. So it's one of those ways in which Chaucer will not make things easy for us. You know, as a reader, you're not happy with any of those endings. You want to take bits of the story and change other bits. And that, I think, is really essential to Chaucer's poetics. You know, he, he doesn't make it easy. These are complicated stories. The Wife of Bath is a complicated character. You can't agree with every aspect of her, every aspect of her views. There's a lot going on and there's so much to talk about. I think this is all going back to when you, you were talking earlier about um, how he, he wanted people to talk about a wide variety of things, discuss the works, yeah. you know, rather than just read them, uh, you know, when you're reading things out loud and stuff like that. I, it's incredible. So I know that Chaucer was accused of, of rape himself at one point. Do you think this is him sort of, you know, giving the power back to the woman, if you like, by so, getting him to, her to talk about it and 
having reparation made for it or something? So the accusation of raptus um, has been much mm. discussed. Um, so this was the case where Cecily Champagne released Chaucer of further action for her raptus. And for a long time, there was debate about whether this was an abduction or whether it was a sexual rape. But just very recently, just in the last year, some new documents have come to light that have demonstrated that this was not a sexual rape. So that what happened in this case was that it was a labour dispute where Cecily Champagne left one she was a servant who left one master to go and work for Chaucer and that Chaucer and Cecily were on the same side in a legal dispute where they were trying to stop her master being able to sue him for having to, and her for having left her former master. So although we don't know, you know, of course, other things about Chaucer's life, we do know now that that was not an accusation of sexual rape. So I think it's... um. I, so I think we. I don't think there's a there's a biographical element there that we can put into it. I do think much more broadly that it's really important to see the prologue and tale in the context of medieval attitudes towards women. So people often assume that the position of medieval women was extremely limited, and in fact, that's really not true. That you know, Chaucer was surrounded by powerful working women. So while, of course, you know, no one would want to be a woman in a time when you know there's no epidurals, no anaesthetics, no vote. Obviously, I'm not saying it was great, but compared to other parts of Europe, it was much, much better. And compared to, in fact, what happened a bit later, it was better at this time. And particularly when we think about that post-plague environment, where there were more job opportunities. Lots of women were working. They were working in a variety of different jobs. In England, the norm was to marry later, so to marry in your 20s, in fact, so that you'd saved up money. You weren't necessarily um, marrying someone that your father had chosen for you. You had your own savings. You formed a new household. If you were from the very richest class, you were more likely to marry young and to marry someone chosen by your family. But most women, lower class women, middle class type women, they had more choice over their husbands. They also were able to inherit from their husbands. They were powerful as widows. They could keep their own money. So, you know, we do see women, you know, someone like the wife of Bath who is able, for example, She's able to go on holiday without her husband. You know, she tells us about this. She goes out and gossips with her friends. She talks about sexual pleasure. She keeps her inheritance when she marries again. Those things would not have been possible for women in other eras or in other parts of the world then. They aren't possible today for women in some parts of the world. So things were not terrible for women in this era. And the wife of Bath does come from that context, from a world that Chaucer was very familiar with. He knew a lot of powerful, important women, his first employer, the queens, his mother, his wife always worked and had her own income. You know, this is the world he came from. Yeah. So how does the wife of Bath tale compare to the other tales in the Canterbury tale in, in terms of, sort of themes and characters and narrative uh, techniques? So, I mean, a lot of the Canterbury tales are about the relations between the sexes in different ways. Um, and so it can be compared with, with those stories. It can also be compared with other with other romances. So what it's doing is very is very different to the Knight's Tale or say the tale of um, Topaz, which Chaucer tells, which is a kind of parody of romance. But in a way all of those romances are interrogating that genre in different in different ways. Um, the in terms of what we see in relations between the sexes, you know, there are some stories where we see very subservient women, for example. And this is a story where we see, you know, women's powerful voices. There's a group of stories 
from all different genres where we see powerful women's voices. So say the prose tale of Melibay, the um, saint's life of the second nun's tale, very different stories, but stories where women have ethical power and women's voices count. So we see those kinds of things echoing across, so those themes, I think, echoing across different stories. Um, it's influenced by Boethius, so the kind of ethics that are talked about. Again, that comes up in The Knight's Tale, in outside of the Canterbury Tales as well, in, in Troilus and Crusade. So there's lots of kind of... Um, echoes across different parts of the tales and the wife of Bath is referred to in the merchant's tale and in the clerk's tale for example the wife of Bath's prologue although as i said before there are two other confessional type prologues where we hear more of people's of, of, of narrators um pasts and voices but nonetheless i would i would put the wife of Bath's prologue out on its own as doing something quite different as standing out for its length and the depth of, of character interrogation that we see yeah, I think I quite like the bits um, where I think she's when at her husband's funeral and she's looking at somebody's legs. Yeah, or yeah, something. the pallbearer's legs. Yeah, <laughs> that's just so funny. It's a great moment. <laughs> so how um, so how do you think Chaucer uses the wife of Bath to comment on or satirize the um, societal norms or expectations of that time? Um. Oh. Well, I mean, I think that example that you just gave, I suppose, is one example of of, of mm. that where we see him being irreverent. So in that, so in that kind of that satire where we see this this very jokey idea of of women, you know, behaving in in outrageous ways. But I think that I, I'm probably more interested in thinking about where he's really seriously interrogating things like the bias of the canon. You know, where he has the wife bar saying very openly, well. Literature is biased. You know, we see all these terrible things being said about women. And that's because one half of the world has not been able to tell their own story. So when she tells us about the Book of Wicked Wives, you know, her husband is, is reading out stories about people such as Pacify, who's a classical woman who fell in love with a bull and had sex with the bull and then gave birth to the Minotaur, right? So it's a famous classical story. And her husband is kind of saying, well, this is what women are like. Now, obviously, that's not relatable to use current parley, right? It's um, it's not what women are like. And the wife of Bath is is saying you know, it's it's absurd that you know these these ridiculous, extreme ideas that men, some men, have about women, are being used to kind of beat ordinary women up with. And this part of society, and she says it's particularly clerics that are doing this you know she says it's clerics it's these men who are you know locked up in their oratories who are writing terrible things about women and they don't know real life about women and women don't have the chance to say this so i think that's a really important way in which chaucer is is interrogating the norms of the time which made it much harder for women to get their voices heard but it is something that's beginning to happen more in chaucer's time so in Chaucer's era, we get our first named female writer writing in English, Julian of Norwich, for example. Marjorie Kemp was lived lived in Chaucer's time and and wrote her, her wrote her or dictated her book about thirty years after Chaucer's death. In France, Christine de Pizan was writing, um, beginning to write towards the end of Chaucer's life, and then after Chaucer's death as well. She wrote things like The Book of the City of Ladies, which echoes many of the things that the wife of Bath is saying. So she says, I was reading all these things about women and they were all awful. And I thought, but none of the women that I know were like this. I don't understand. And then these female allegorical figures appear to her and essentially say, well, 
all the books were written by men. You know, get on with it and write a book, you know, write a book which defends women, write the book of the city of ladies, which gives the other side of the story. So Chaucer is, a, is part of a kind of vanguard, I think, of, of people who are who are saying this kind of thing, that we actually need to think more about the female perspective. So how's the wife of Bath... Um been received over time that her tale in particular how has it been received over time but both in sort of Chaucer's era and sort of after that so it's been much more popular than any other part of Chaucer and that's really notable right across time so although we don't have you know direct um direct sense of of, of contemporary readers what we do see in early manuscripts is people as many scribes wrote much more next to the wife of bath's prologue than they do next to any other part of the canterbury tales so the people that are copying out the canterbury tales were often very worried about the wife of bath and wanted to write a lot of things next to the prologue to make it clear that she was wrong about things for example we then see you know in in quite early poems in the late 15th and early 16th century. So, for example, one poet, he writes about the Canterbury Tales. He writes four lines about the rest of the Canterbury Tales and then ten about the wife of Bath, for example. So really disproportionate in the amount of interest he gives to the wife of Bath. We then get, I mean, in the 16th century, a really popular ballad called The Wanton Wife of Bath, circulated very, very widely. It was censored, it was burnt, the printers were put in prison, but many more versions were written. It was wildly popular right through to the 19th century. Voltaire translated The Wife of Bath's Tale in French in the 18th century. In the 18th century, Dryden said he didn't dare translate her prologue, but he did translate her tale. Pope translated her prologue, but took out all the sex, so there wasn't really much left. John Gay, another very important 18th century writer, um, wrote a play called The Wife of Bath in 1713 and rewrote it in 1731. Um, in the 19th century, the tale was very often rewritten. The prologue was seen as, as, as quite dodgy. Um, then in recent years, so much. So we've got, for example, you know, Julie Walters playing The Wife of Bath in the wonderful BBC adaptation. Patience Agbagbi, one of our, our best contemporary poets, she's written translations, adaptations of all the Canterbury tales, but she started with The Wife of Bath, which was The Wife of Baffa, a Nigerian wife of Bath. Very recently, so only in, in 2021, Zadie Smith's Wife of Wilsdon. So again, one of the most famous um, contemporary novelists globally, Zadie Smith, um, made a foray in, her first foray into playwriting and it was The Wife of Bath. And she adapted, translated really, the prologue and tale quite closely. Brilliant, brilliant adaptation of The Wife of Bath. Um, another example is Jean Binterbreeze, a, a British poet of Caribbean origin who um, who performed The Wife of Bath in Brixton Market. Again, in a kind of patois English, you can see it on YouTube. It's a really brilliant version of the opening of the prologue. I mean, The Wife of Bath just continues to spark so many creative responses. And I, I think it's very exciting that she's still an inspiration for so many writers today. You have been listening to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening. <laughs>